From the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, starting with verse 1. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The word of the Lord. A reading from Romans chapter 13, starting with verse 11. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. The word of the Lord. From the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, starting with verse 36. But about the day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other will be left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready. The Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please have a seat. Thank all of you for your part up to this point, and for those of you who will lead in worship after. Uh, I am your preacher for today, Um, which, um, yes, I was waiting for the thunderous applause, and and, uh, uh, my printer didn't work, so this is handwritten, so you don't have to worry about the 11 pages, it's not uh, single space typed. Uh, You know, I was, I I don't have this written down, but I I was thinking about how... um, how interesting our gospel is to people who know nothing about the gospel. Uh, We talk about Christ has come, but we talk about anticipating the coming of Christ. Uh, We talk about God lives forever, but 
Jesus is God and God and Jesus died. There, there are so many things in, in the text of the Bible that you read, and um, it can be very unsettling and very confusing. I read certain passages, and I certainly won't get into all the detail of every question I have about the gospel and the scriptures, but you know, it, it says that you know, unless we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of the Father, um, then we don't experience salvation. And yet, it says that in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And my brain starts going, I don't know what to do with the Scriptures. And I'm suddenly aware, as I was when I read the three passages for, morning, for this morning, that they are heavy-hitting passages. Isaiah 2, Matthew 13, uh, Romans 13, Matthew 24, they're all really big passager, passages, and I am not. I am not that preacher. I'm not apologizing. I'm the guy you have this morning. But those are really big passages. You could, you could spend a week doing seminars on those passages. And, um, but there are things in these passages that feel worth not passing over as we begin our new church year as we think about the coming of Christ, as we enter into Advent, closing out the church year last Sunday. So I I hope that we will get to that. And if you have a Bible or a Bible on your phone, I would encourage you to have them open, not because we're going to hit every passage or every verse, but because there are some really important phrases and really powerful phrases in these that I hope we'll get to. Uh, Ellen and I were raised in a different generation of church and in a different culture of church than most of you if you were raised in church. Um, Tyler says I have an age problem, and the problem is I'm getting old. An age and security, that's what it is, age and security. I I am getting older, um, but... This is really not about my insecurity about being almost 63. This is about church has changed so much since I grew up in church. We were raised in a completely different culture of church and a completely different generation of church. Uh, That alone could launch a thousand stories, but I'm going to narrow it down to this one story to tell you. When I read the Old Testament reading and the lectionary for today, I was reminded of an old friend, Gerald Dunlap. I was, while in graduate school, on the pastoral staff of a large evangelical church in uptown New Orleans. Now, if you know New Orleans, you know that uptown is not a reference of privilege, but of direction or location. New Orleanians don't use north, south, east, and west. They use uptown, downtown, river, and lake. So it's a direction, and our church happened to be in the uptown part of New Orleans. Uh, One Sunday, our our Sunday morning services were broadcast live on television, and our evening services on the radio, now just saying evening services, remember I'm from a different generation. We had morning services and we had evening services, and the evening service was broadcast live on radio. So every Sunday morning, I stood at the back of our sanctuary and awaited the singing of the first hymn, because that's when the cameraman's raised hand would drop and I would begin talking. 
Good morning, I'm David Wally, Minister of Adults here at First Baptist Church New Orleans, and it's my privilege to welcome you to our Sunday morning worship service. This morning, our pastor will be preaching from a passage from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 2. I hope you'll have your Bible ready for this important message, or follow along with the reading as the verses are shown at the bottom of your screen. If you don't have a Bible and would like one, please call 504-895-8632, and we'll make sure you have one this week. Thank you for being part of our worshiping family this morning. We're glad you have joined us. Now let's join the service live and already in progress as if we had just cracked the technology. It probably could go without saying that we were a structured lot. TV, if nothing else, demanded it. Dead airtime was anathema and avoided at all costs. Staffers who had leadership responsibilities in the service sat on the platform throughout the entire service. We sat in formal, religious-looking chairs that were designed neither for comfort nor lengthy sitting. We were not allowed to cross our legs. No one on the platform, which included the choir, could wear earrings because the lights for the camera could reflect on the earrings and distract people in the audience and it could cause us to lose watcher TV viewers, or so we, so we thought. Perhaps the most important rule of all was the two-second rule. The person waiting his turn at the pulpit must be ready to begin speaking within two seconds of the person before him who was speaking. Uh, yeah. Silence and meditation were sacrificed in service of flow and momentum. Commonly, during prayer, the next person to speak stood immediately behind the prayer so that upon hearing amen, this brief dance that we did would begin and the prayer would step to the left, the person behind him would step forward, the prayer would step back, and the next person would start speaking. Uh, I, I know you're still wondering about Gerald Dunlap, by the way. <laughs> I haven't forgotten about Gerald Dunlap. I'm getting there. So this one particular Sunday, our choir sang an anthem based on our Old Testament reading today, Isaiah 2. It was, uh, written, it was an anthem written by Eugene Butler called The Mountain of the Lord. It was one of my favorite anthems ever. Um, it, it was one we had done on several occasions, and many people in our congregation were familiar with it. It was divided into two distinct sections, beginning with ethereal chords and a combination of fanfare and discordant reflections of foreboding phrases in the text, an exuberant celebration of the Lord's habitation on the mountain. The first section ended with a slow, mysterious description of the Lord judging among the people. It's directly right out of the second chapter of Isaiah. It ground to an ominous stop. This is where Gerald Dunlap comes in. He was our minister of education and was to speak to the congregation right after the anthem was over. Gerald did his two-second duty, honorably but poorly timed. Standing at the pulpit mic, everyone knew that Gerald had jumped the mark. The conductor's hands were still high in the air and the choir was still standing. And sheepishly, and as if in reverse, Gerald backed to his chair and took his seat again. And the choir kept going. But the place 
where they started then was the second part of the anthem. And if I could sing, you would hear it. It turns into this beautiful melody. And they shall beat swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. They shall not learn war anymore. Nation will not rise up against nation. I know Ellen can hear these lines in her head and uh, loving every minute of it. And it's better that I don't sing them. I do want to say this parenthetically, and I'm telling you parenthetically means it has nothing to do with the message, okay? (laughs) We experience good music. We have people here who lead us faithfully in worship. But I I do um, am aware that I've spent my life transitioning in styles of worship, and style of worship is something that I just, I've chosen not to let it matter. It just can't matter. A style that you might prefer might not be a style that I prefer. But I do have to tell you that it it was a wonderful experience to be a part of a church where hundreds of musicians were singing together. Part of a service where uh, musicians of all times, all kinds of joined together in the belief that uh, music can never be too good for God. And I hope in your lifetime, you get a taste of that. It probably won't return in my lifetime, but maybe in yours. Parenthesis closed. Let's look at Isaiah 2. It's interesting as he talks, as this passage uh, describes the mountain of the Lord or Zion, um, that the transcendence of Zion is rooted uh, in one reality, and that is that God is there. In fact, in other places in the scripture, uh, the mountains are anthropomorphized. They're given human character traits. Uh, Psalm 68 says, the mountains of Bashan are majestic mountains. Rugged are the mountains of Bashan. Why gaze then in envy, O rugged mountains, at the mountain where God chooses to reign? where the Lord himself will dwell forever. The glory of Zion, the glory of the mountain, the glory of God's dwelling place is that he is there. It's the same with us in church. But this this idea that God dwells here on this mountain made every other mountain envious. The word says that the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. Nations will stream to it. Why does the scripture, what is, what is the reason the scripture tells us that people will stream to this mountain? And that is that God will teach us from this mountain. It says, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. It says that many, many people came to the mountain. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He, the Lord, the God of Jacob, will teach us. He will teach us on the mountain of the Lord in the house of God of Judah, our God dwells. He is there. And by his presence, Zion becomes the envy of every mountain. I believe this passion casts a vision of the church. Apart from the presence of God with it, in it, the church is just another envious mountain. But Christ came to establish the church. He didn't die for the church only to abandon it, even if it should abandon him. He is with us. He is in us. Every Sunday, Preston teaches us 
as the many who ascended Zion and Isaiah passage were taught, God teaches us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. Our epistle reading says, starts in an odd place, uh, picking up on this thought. It says, and do this knowing the times. Do what? Well, in short, it tells us to love and to love well, and it tells us the things that we can do that would not be very loving. And then it says, so do this understanding the present time. Well, what should we understand about the present time? Uh, For one thing, the thing that comes to my mind most readily is that the people of the world today don't really show much interest uh, across the board with any consistency uh, of envy of the truth that we as a church are stewards of. Few seem to want to know the ways of God in order that they can follow in His paths. God is a bit passe and unnecessary in the world. The the social science of which I am a part, um, I hope not in this way, but works very hard to make sure that we believe in ourselves and don't feel a need for God. it's It's a very pronounced goal that we depend on ourselves, that we find in ourselves the strength to carry on, uh, that we don't need something outside of ourselves. While at the same time, the greatest need of the people of today's world is to know and to be changed by the truth we profess as people of God's church. The hour has come, the epistle passage continues, for you, us, to wake up from your slumber because your salvation is nearer than when we first believed. For just a moment, let's take notice that it says, um, when we first believed, that's making reference to when we came to an understanding of the knowledge of salvation. However God makes that happen for us, we first believed when we first understood and God first gave us faith to acknowledge it. But then it talks about our salvation is nearer than it ever has been before. And I believe this is making reference to Christ's return, that he will be coming back. Um, It's not not being said in any kind of a threat um, rather than uh, motivation to be aroused from this sleep, this kind of taking life loosely, capriciously, Uh, not taking seriously our identity as believers in the world who are responsible to be salt and light and season the world with God's truth. So how are we missing this opportunity to be that in the world? Well, Romans 13, just prior to our reading, mentions many things. First, we have a debt to love people well. And our culture is divided and divisive. Let's not be a part of the not loving well. Love requires no mutual platform of belief. Love looks past it all to the person, to the people who find it hard to believe that they are loved. So one of the ways that we miss this opportunity to talk about the coming of Christ is by not being people who love well. 
there's a, in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, and in the Epistles, there's a constant comparison between light and dark, day and night. You'll see that a lot. Um, all of those are references, in all the dark, the night references are obviously references to sin, fallenness, being outside of God, being apart from God, and light refers to insight, being known by God, loving God, being redeemed by God, being changed by God. It's all through, um, all through the Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. There's reference to adultery, murder, stealing, coveting in these passages that we read this morning and, and the surrounding verses. So the question comes, how, all these things are available to us. How, how do we stand on the side of light? How do we be people who stand on the side of light? Well, uh, he, uh, Matthew chapter 13, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 13, tells us uh, probably three ways, beginning in verse 12, that we can do this. They, they do run into each other. They are not completely separate. But verse 12 talks about putting on the armor of light. Uh, Ephesians 5, if you want to turn there or find, scroll there. Ephesians 5, beginning, beginning in verse 8. Um, my, the print in my Bible got smaller overnight. So, uh, not sure what to do about that, but here it goes. Um, Ephesians 5 talks about this uh, putting on and taking off, putting on the light. We talk about um, one, that being one of the ways we can put on the light, we can stand on the side of the light. Ephesians 5 uses this language, for once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them for it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper. Here we go again. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Uh, Ephesians 6 goes into this passage that most of us have some familiar, familiarity with. It talks about the helmet of salvation, the blessed breastplate of righteousness, and it goes on and on and talks about this spiritual armor that we can put on. Um, Ephesians 4 is probably one of my favorite passages about this putting on and taking off um, it's one of the passages as a new believer that helped me understand some things I'd never understood before. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2 says, 22 says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. What is the old self? Let this be a participation time. What's the old self? Sin. Darkness. Deadness. It's all part of the old way of life. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted. And this is one of the most interesting phrases about sin. 
It's being corrupted by deceitful desires. Why not just desires? Why not sinful desires? They're deceitful because they promise to deliver something they will never deliver. They're not able to deliver. The peace, for instance, uh, we could pick many things, but the peace, for instance, that we are given in Christ is a lasting peace that doesn't go away. It's like when Jesus said, you can drink water from this well, but you're going to get thirsty again. Drink from the spring of life that I provide and you won't be thirsty again. Deceitful desires promise us this will fix your problem. This will make you feel better. This will do what you're looking for. Uh, It's deceiving us. We have these desires and they are deceiving us and we participate in them. And when we do, we are not putting on light. What we are actually being told to do is to take those off. Take off the former way of life or your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And then it tells us to be made new in the attitude of our minds and to put on the new self. What's the new self? Light, life, wholeness, healing, forgiveness. Put on the new self. Uh, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, our righteousness is His. Our holiness is His. Um, So one of the ways that we can participate in this um, opportunity that we have for the coming of God into the world Um, to communicate that to people who need to hear the truth is to put on light. Verse 13 of Romans 13 tells us to behave decently as in the day, as if anything that happens at night is shameful. One of the things about our world today is that people, things that used to happen at night happen in the day a lot. (laughs) My youngest child's girlfriend's car was stolen in the middle of the day the other day taken for a joyride, ran from police, uh, was involved in two hit and runs, and then they jumped out of the car while it was rolling and it crashed into a building in the middle of the day. Um, But the idea is still here. The deeds done at night, the the things done in hiddenness are shameful things. We we wouldn't want to know those things. So it tells us to make sure that we behave decently as in the light In other words, as if people are watching us. There is an interesting thing here to me. Um, It it seems that he could have said, tell people the truth. And, And certainly there are places where we're told to do that. But here he says, behave decently. And I think there's this principle at work in the scriptures and in life that when what we say and what we do are not in line with each other, people believe what we do more than what we say. It's easy to say, I'm a follower of Christ. It's not easy to follow Christ. So people will often choose to trust our behavior over our words. So here in 13, he says, behave decently as in the day. And I think we have a responsibility not to just, as is easily said, talk the talk, but walk 
the walk. We are called to be people of a behavior that represents transformation. In verse 14 of chapter 13 of Romans, the very, these are just three consecutive verses, it says to clothe ourselves with Christ. We have other options. He's listed sinful options that we could participate in, but those things don't show the light. Clothe ourselves with Christ. We will put on Christ or we will tend to nurture those deceitful desires. Now, truth be known, we do both. We put on Christ and sometimes in desperation, we don't trust Christ and we give in to deceitful desires. But Christ is always in the process of transforming our minds so that our trust is increased. Transforming our hearts so that our believing is increased, so that our, belief, our behavior is brought more in line with our belief uh, than it has been before. As we prayed earlier for this service uh, before we started, one of the things that we talked about was praying that God would do something during this time that would leave us changed even if we don't know how God has changed us. So we will put on Christ or we will tend to the deceitful desires of the flesh. And as I've said, they're deceitful because they want, they can't deliver what they promise. That brings us back to the gospel reading today, and I hope you'll turn there, Matthew 24. I want to read the whole passage of the gospel reading again, uh, beginning in chapter 24, verse 36. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what was about to happen until the flood came and took them away. Now, Noah knew. I don't know how many people he told. I don't know if he told his wife. I don't know if he told his sons. I don't know if he told his daughters, daughters-in-law. But Noah knew. But no one knew until the flood came. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill and one will be taken and the other left. It, it's suggesting that at the coming of Christ there is a divide. It is made clear the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day the Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So also you must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. I can promise you that my son's girlfriend, had she known this guy was on his way, <laughs> would have gotten her car out of his path. 
She would have made sure it was locked. She would have made sure everything that needed to happen to keep it from being stolen would take place. How blessed we are if we live in the delightful anticipation of the coming of the Lord rather than in dread and fear that it could happen at any time and we failed to follow His instruction to watch and be ready. No one wants you ready more than God Himself. He has told us the truth. He has shown us His love in Jesus. And He leads us by His Spirit. There are swords that need to be made into plowshares. There are spears that need to be turned into pruning hooks. But that will take some work. And that work is ours to do our signature work of making peace where there was no peace. Watch and wait. God is far more eager to show mercy than to pass judgment. Love His grace. Love His mercy. Love His peace. And love His coming. Let's pray. God, You have called us out of brokenness and out of fallenness. And you have given us a spirit of truth. You have given us a spirit of power. You have shown us a path to follow. You teach us. And your spirit reminds us, walk in this way. And in doing that, we bring light into a dark world as you, the light of the world, came into a dark world. Help us to be participants in the light with Jesus. Help us to be a church that spreads the truth that has a compassionate grace where we all fall short of the truth and righteousness. We are grateful that you have made us light. As the scripture tells us, you have rescued us from the dominion of darkness and you have brought us into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of your Son, you love in whom we have redemption. Make us light in all the darkness around us. And may we be about the work of transforming swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks and be caught doing your purpose in that moment when you come. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.